Anxious about buying your first home? We'll tell you everything you need to know on this episode of Happily Unmarried. Hi, my name is Danielle. And my name is Daniel. And you're listening to the Happily Unmarried podcast, a podcast about adulting and living your best life. In this episode, we will talk about how to prepare for buying a home, what the process looks like, and how nuts it is to buy a house in the San Francisco Bay Area. Roughly a year ago, we bought our first house together. Yeah, it was a very exciting and stressful time. Yeah. Reflecting on it now, we wanted to share with you everything we learned during the house buying process. And I think we're going to start with how to prepare for this process. Right. So what are the steps that you need to take to prepare for buying a house? So there's a lot of factors that go into preparing um, to buy a house. But the first step is preparing for the mortgage. Right. So you can't you can't buy your house until you have you know, pre-approval and you know what, how much a you know a lender would even be willing to lend well, you. Unless you have a lot of cash lying yeah, on. Yeah, unless you just like full cash, done. Uh, most of us, it's not the case. So, uh, you know, in preparing for the mortgage, there's some things that you should consider if you haven't considered uh, and potentially may need to work on before, you know, you take those steps and, and go to a lender and, and get pre-approval. And the first thing is making sure your credit is good. Making sure your credit is good can be a very long process. If your credit right now isn't very good, then it might take months or even years for you to be able to get your credit up to a level where you can get a good mortgage for. Right. And there's a lot of information out there online in regards to how you can clean up your credit score. So we're not going to go into great detail about that. Instead, I think we're going to focus on uh, what you could possibly do short term uh, to increase your score, Um, starting with lowering your credit to debt ratio. Right. So... The credit-to-debt ratio is an important factor for your credit score, and there are two ways how you can improve that. That is, you reduce the amount of debt that you have, or you increase the amount of credit that you have. Um, So, for example, one easy way is to just reach out to your credit card company and ask them if they are willing to increase your credit. And if they are, then there you go. You have a couple additional credit score points suddenly. Right. And I think we both actually did that in preparation for our mortgage. Right. Um, and then I also did the other thing, which was pay off, pay off your debt. <laughs> Wait, you paid off my debt? No, paid off my debt. <laughs> um, right. And very important leading up to something like a big mortgage is you want to make sure that you don't open up a bunch of additional credit lines just before you apply. So no new credit cards, ideally. There's an argument to be made that You will get additional credit and will improve your credit to debt ratio. But the additional things on your credit report, the the new accounts, as well as the credit report increase that these credit cards will cause, will... It will negatively impact more than the positive impact of getting an increased credit. And that ties into the last point as well. Right. And you also briefly just mentioned this. Every time someone runs your credit that negatively impacts your credit score. And that's even the the mortgage lenders themselves. As you're searching for a mortgage, you have to be mindful that these, these companies are also going to be checking your credit and hitting your credit score. So you want to minimize any that don't need to be done. Well, there's a little trick. Multiple inquiries for the same type of credit on your credit report will actually only show up as one inquiry. So as long as those inquiries happen within a specific time frame, and I'm I don't, it may be three months, maybe it's less than that. But basically, if you have all the different lenders pull your credit report in the same couple of weeks, then there will only be one ding on your, on your credit report. So what you do not want to do is you don't want to go to one lender 
today and then to another lender in a couple of months and then to another lender in a couple of months more, that will actually negatively impact, impact your credit score. So you want to want to do is go to all the lenders that you are considering around the same in the same time frame. Great. So the next thing that you want to consider when preparing um, for a mortgage is your income to debt ratio, which is different than your credit to debt ratio. <laughs> yeah, so many ratios. Um, specifically is how much money do you make every month? And how much of that money that you make every month? Are you paying in interest and principal payments for already open lines of credit? So for example, an auto loan, or maybe an already a mortgage that you already have or something else. Right. And that's actually something that I did when we were preparing for our mortgages. I made sure that I paid off all of my student loans. Uh, I didn't want to carry that debt. I wanted to ensure that I had the appropriate funds to pay the mortgage every month. My overall debt that I was paying off went to zero. That was fun. Yeah. Generally, a income to debt ratio of 36% or less is considered good. And any lender will, will be happy to give you a mortgage if your income to debt ratio does not increase over 36%. And this is important. You need to include your mortgage that you're shopping for in determining your income to debt ratio. And that needs to be well, it can be over 36%, but it's con- 36% or lower is considered great. Right. And I think a lot of people don't think about that part. Uh, they just look at their current situation and what their current income is and what their current debt is. Uh, and then when you factor in that additional cost, and maybe the mortgage is twice as much as what you're currently paying in rent, and all of a sudden you are no longer under 36% when it comes to the debt income ratio. So the next point that is really important when preparing for a mortgage is employment and employment history. Your lender will want to see um, your last two years, I think, of employment history and to make sure that you are will be able to continuously pay for your mortgage. Right. So this is specifically to you uh, job hopping millennials. Don't quit your job if you are planning on buying a house in the next year or two. <laughs> And the last piece, which is the piece that I think everyone thinks about when they are planning on buying a home is the down payment, right? So we're all thinking about the down payment. That's for some people, the hardest part of buying a home. And when we think about a down payment, what we're talking about usually is 20% of the home price. Yeah, you can go higher or lower. Um, and it has effects on on your, your monthly payments. But that is the, the norm. Uh, I think 20% is what the lender wants to see. And important for the down payment um, is also to understand before you, you will get pre-approved, you will have to prove to your lender that you have those funds available. So they will want to see a bank statement or a brokerage account statement or whatever. So just be aware of that. Um, you will probably not get pre-approved if you cannot prove that you have those funds. Right. This isn't going to work if you're anticipating getting a significant amount of money, but you don't yet have it. You need to wait until you have the money before you apply for the pre-approval. Yeah. Okay. So once we addressed all of these things and made sure that you know, our credit was in line, we had stable employment, we were getting our income to debt ratio under control, and we were preparing money for our down payment, we stopped and thought, well, can we actually afford this? And I know you're thinking, well, you have the money for the down payment. So why are you thinking about it now if you can actually afford it? And I think that's because a lot of people don't consider that when you buy a house, it's not just a down payment. There are different types of costs that go into buying a house. And what we did is we sat down and we broke down those costs and we looked at them separately to ensure that whatever decision we decided to make in regards to buying a house, that it was the best financial decision for both of us. Right. 
the two major parts to the cost of buying a house, you can break them down in one-time costs. Those are things that you, you pay once when you buy the house. And then there's recurring costs that you have to pay every month or every year once you own that house. And we wanted to make sure that buying the house makes sense financially for us for both of these categories. So the biggest one-time cost that goes into buying a house, and this is the one cost I think that is on everybody's mind, is the down payment. Right, because it's the biggest obstacle for many. So depending on where you live and the cost of housing in your area, 20% down can be anywhere from $10,000 to $300,000. There are several things that you can do to help you achieve or save up that down payment. The obvious one is save cash. You get a paycheck every month, take some of that, put it in a bank account, save up for your down payment. I mean, I know people that will move back in with their family for a year just so that they can put all their money in aside to, to gather the money. for Reduce the expenditures. Yes. Another thing that you can do is uh, sell stock from a brokerage account. Well, you have to have a brokerage account, obviously, with stock in it. (laughs) (laughs) If you have a brokerage account with stock in it, you have the option to sell it. If you have saved cash in the past and invested that um, to make better returns on it, then obviously you can liquidate some of those assets. But that also has some hidden additional costs involved. Right. If you make capital gains on those stocks, then you will have to pay taxes. If you sell stocks worth $50,000 and you have $10,000 in capital gains, you need to consider that you may have to, depending on your tax bracket, that you will have to pay between 10 and 20% of those gains at the end of the year in capital gains taxes. So you better keep $1,000 somewhere stocked. You also have the option to borrow from your 401k or you can cash out um, an IRA if you have it. Uh, I believe you can cash out up to, from an IRA up to $10,000 for a minimal uh, penalty. The 401k is a little bit different. You have to actually pay that back. So that is also another option. Yeah. And then the last option that I think a significant amount of people actually utilize is borrowing money from friends or family, or maybe even getting it gifted, more likely in the case of family. But Right. If your family is available, and they have the money, and they're willing to help you, don't say no to that. Yeah. So, yeah. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes and don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode. And then there's also the option of not paying down 20%, but paying down less than 20%. Lenders like to see a 20% down payment, but it's not necessarily impossible to get a mortgage at a lower down payment. But generally, this will mean that you will have to get a private mortgage insurance. Basically, that ensures your mortgage against you not being able to pay back the, the loan to the lender. Right, which means you then have to have the money to pay your mortgage and the additional cost of that insurance. Right, and paying for the mortgage means all the running costs that come with owning a house, not only the mortgage, which we'll go Even to uh, in a bit. Another one-time cost that needs to be considered when buying a home is inspections. Well, you have to consider them if you're not waiving them. Here in the Bay Area, when we were buying our house, we ended up waiving all contingencies, also the inspection contingencies. So we didn't even have an inspector go through the house on our behalf. 
Right. And this is unfortunately very common practice in the Bay Area. Uh, in order to be competitive uh, with your offer, uh, we tend to waive these. Then after inspections, the next one-time cost you're going to run into are the closing costs. So everything that you are that goes into finishing out the mortgage. Well, not only the mortgage, the entire home buying right. process. Yes. Wrap, wrapping it all up. Right. That includes the title insurance, escrow. Escrow fees, the appraisal of the the house, which is something that, that the, the lender wants. Just processing all of this paperwork. And all of these costs are typically t- between 2 and 5% of the total home cost. Yeah. Although 5% seems awfully high to me. We got those numbers from Google. So we, I think we paid more 1% in closing costs. That may be different in different areas and depending on your home price, etc. And then the fun part begins, which is all these renovations and repairs that you want to do before you move into the house. So you want to get a new kitchen, maybe um, you need a new HVAC system because the old one is rubbish, or you want to replace those grimy carpets with like nice, shiny hardwood floors. All of this costs money as well. And that needs to be part of your budget um, to be able to uh, afford that. Right. So if you are not purchasing a house that is move-in ready, it's very likely that you will want to put money into the home before need to, you maybe or even. even need to depending on the situation before you can even move in. I mean, we were relatively lucky. Our house was basically move in ready. We just replaced some carpets, painted. That was pretty much it. Right. And lastly, moving costs. I I think a lot of people don't think about this part. Whether you're paying a professional service to move you or you're paying your friends in uh, beer and pizza, uh, you're still, you know, that's packing materials, boxes. If you are paying a professional company, you know, depending on how far you're moving from plays a factor. If you are moving yourself, then you have to pay for the the U-Haul and depending on the size of the U-Haul. So there is always going to be some additional costs involved. Uh, we paid roughly $1,500 to move and we moved what, two miles? At most. <laughs> Once we confirmed that, you know, we had the money together for that, the, the one-time costs, then we had to sit down and really figure out what the the running costs, what the reoccurring costs were going to look like to own a home together and whether or not that was something that we would be able to afford on a monthly basis. When you look at the initial payment, the down payment is the most significant part to that. And that is usually what people have on their mind when they think about the initial cost. They tend to forget all the other small things, but they are relatively small compared to the down payment. But when you come to the running cost, people... The only thing that people really consider is their mortgage payment, but there's really a lot more to owning and maintaining a home. And we want to look at this a little bit more closer now. So primary recurring cost is your mortgage payment. And depending on your interest rate and the lifetime of your loan, your your mortgage payment can be higher or lower. But it's important to understand that your mortgage payment is composed of two parts, which is one is the interest payment that you pay, and then there's the principal that you pay. And obviously, you have to pay both every month. But in a lot of ways, you can think of your principal payment more like saving money than spending money, whereas the interest is is an actual cost to you. You still have to come up with the money, obviously, right? But that's just something to consider, like paying the principal actually builds equity in the house for you. One thing that's easily overlooked is that your mortgage payment is not your only running cost. Right. So the next running cost, which I think people do consider and think about, um, it's not top of mind, it's not the number one thing, is property taxes. 
Uh, Property taxes do vary by state. In California, that's typically about 1% of the home value or the cost of the home, uh, and that's annually. So for a million-dollar home, you're looking at $10,000 a year in property taxes. And I think this is the important thing. A lot of people, they are aware that they will have to pay property taxes, but they don't realize how much that actually can be annualized or, or even on a monthly basis. So approximately 1% for an approximately $1 million home is 800 and something dollars every month, in addition to whatever mortgage you're already paying. That can be easily 20% um, of your of your total mortgage cost. Right. So if you thought that you could afford a $4,000 monthly mortgage payment, you may only afford a $3,400 monthly mortgage when you're also considering property taxes. The other thing is that you can pay your property taxes in two different ways. You can either roll them into your mortgage payment and pay them monthly through your lender, or you can just pay directly to the local tax collector, and that's twice a year. And they say it's it's at Christmas and tax time. It's like the two best times that you want to fork over a big chunk of money. I think for most people, the easiest solution is to roll it into your mortgage payment. There are some drawbacks to that, but for most people, I think it's just the more convenient and the easier to calculate with way to pay the property taxes. So then the next thing that you got to look at is homeowner's insurance. Pretty standard, varies by state, approximately $1,000 a year, roughly $80 a month. But again, it may seem small when you think it's only $80 a month, but it is another reoccurring cost that you have to be mindful of. Did you know that you could listen to this podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and even on our website? Just search for Happily Unmarried Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. And then the next item is the silent sleeper. I think this is just the one point that everybody misses when they're thinking about how much will this house cost me effectively, and that is actual maintenance of the home. And we're Uh, not talking about remodeling. Right. We're talking about things are breaking and need to be fixed. Exactly. So today, if something breaks in your rental, you call your landlord and you're like, hey, dude, my washer is broken down or the garbage disposal doesn't work. Or the roof is leaking. The roof is leaking. Guess what? As a homeowner... You get to pay it now. You're going to pay it now. Yeah. Yeah. You can easily spend thousands of dollars a year on the upkeep of your home. And we got to learn this... The hard way. I mean, not the hard way, because we did our homework and our research, and we were we we knew that this could potentially happen, but we weren't necessarily prepared to spend the amount of money that we have spent in the last year on maintenance for this home. I mean, I I think it was pretty hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And just to give everyone an idea of kind of what we went through in the first year, we had a water incident in our downstairs. We had to pay for restoration of our floors and drywall. So that was covered partially by our insurance. Fun fact, you really want to make sure you have your homeowner's insurance at the time of closing because we filed our very first homeowner's insurance claim, what, a week in or so? Uh, two weeks into yeah. owning our house. So that was roughly $5,000. That was $5,000 that stuck with us. Oh, right. The, the insurance paid more deductible. than... Yeah. Uh, we had a broken dishwasher that we replaced. Replace that was 800. 800 We had a power surge. So uh, PG&E, our electric company, messed up, which created a power surge on our home and essentially broke a bunch of our electronics. Yeah, so like a microwave died, our heater HVAC system got damaged. 
the um, the ventilation hood above our stove broke, uh, a bunch of light switches. So that was about 3800 bucks plus additional electrical repairs for about another $800. Yeah, later it was unrelated. Although it wasn't, 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 we weren't entirely sure. Um, yeah. We just hadn't noticed that problem before. Right. So in total, we spent roughly $10,000 in repairs in the first year of owning a home. Yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> Yay, home ownership. <laughs> And that doesn't even include any voluntary home right. improvements that we've made to the house. Yes, these are all the things that we did not want to pay for. So I guess this is our PSA. If you don't consider these additional costs, your dream of home ownership can quickly become a nightmare that ends in foreclosure. All right, now that we're super pumped, <laughs> let's, ta- let's talk about the steps to buying a house. Step one, find a lender. When looking for a lender, you want to go and shop around um, with different options. But you probably want to start with your house bank. You generally have a good business relationship with them. They're less likely to just send you away when you approach them. So start there and then then find other options. And you, what you want to do is you want to shop around. So you want to get offers for a mortgage from various lenders and then see who gives you the, com- the most competitive offers. And then you can go back with those comp- more competitive offers to the other lenders and say, hey, Bank of America offers me this better interest rate. If you can undercut them by 0.2%, then I'll prefer to get my mortgage from you guys instead. Once you've chosen your lender, the next step is going to be to get your pre-approval, which we've covered, you know, all the things that you need to do with that. You'll need to have an idea of how much house you plan to buy and what you can afford. Right. The lender will literally ask you how much money do you want and you need an answer. Right. You'll also then have to provide documentation on your income and your employment. And that's when they run your credit and tell you if you can afford (laughs) that much house. And it's also to note that just because a lender is willing to approve you for a mortgage, it doesn't mean that you actually can't afford the house, right? Keep those hidden running costs in mind when you do this. Just because a lender will give you the money to buy a ridiculously expensive house doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best choice for you or that you can actually afford it without going house poor, essentially. But once you've got your pre-approval letter, that's when you can start looking for your realtor. Realtors are a dime a dozen, right? Everybody and their grandma is a realtor these days, um, especially in competitive areas like the Bay Area. But it's important to understand that the realtor is kind of like your guide in the house buying process. So that will be he, the realtor will be the person that you can go to with questions, that you can get advice from, um, and they will generally be the probably the most helpful person in this entire process. Right. Try to find someone who's competent <laughs> that you can trust and who understands who you are as a as a person, as a couple and what you're what looking, you're looking for. for. Yeah. Referrals from friends are usually always a good start. That's how we found our realtor. Her name is Kira Garoni. Uh, She was a referral from a friend. Uh, She was fantastic. So if you are listening from the Bay Area, we will include her contact information in our description because we highly recommend her. And so if you're worrying, oh, a realtor, I can't afford a realtor, they're way too expensive. Here's good news for you. You're actually not paying for the realtor. The person that's paying for the realtor is the seller, effectively. So there's a commission that the seller pays for that is split between the seller's agent and the buyer's agent. Right. Uh, so once you start shopping around for a realtor, you know, meet with them uh, and have them explain to you how they can help you and what their role in this process is going to be. Don't get frustrated if they don't immediately 
find your dream home that can take a little bit of time and and you also don't have to rely on the realtor only you can absolutely look yourself and go to open houses on your own house hunting in general can be kind of a long drawn out process right but if you feel like your realtor is maybe not competent or does not really get you and you don't feel comfortable with them don't be afraid to look for somebody else this is a big this is probably one of the lar- largest purchases you're ever going to make. You want to make sure that you're working with somebody that you trust. Yeah. So once you've found your realtor, that's when you're going to start attending open houses, both probably on your own and alone with your realtor. Start looking, you know, in your price range, maybe even a little bit higher just to get an idea uh, of what the market looks like and what people are asking for and what how much house you'll get for that much money. And one thing also that we suggest it when you're you know, considering your home is actually aiming lower than your max. Specifically, again, in the Bay Area, being such a competitive market, a lot of times you have to go lower than your max because you may have to offer higher or they may counter you later. You're typically better off if you aim lower and you don't look at homes that are at your absolute max. Right. So in our case, for example, we ended up paying 30% more for the house that we bought um, compared to what the original listing price was. So the next step in the process is to actually go and make an offer once you've found your dream house. So before you actually make your offer, uh, there's a few things that you need to do. One is working through the disclosures. Disclosures have to be submitted by the seller uh, and they have to disclose information about material defects regarding the property. So if the roof is leaking, for example, the seller has to disclose that information to the buyer. And the seller is legally liable for any undisclosed material defects if he was aware of them. Uh, next, you'll review comps in the area. So the comps are comparable properties uh, that have been sold recently. This helps you gauge the value of the property to set, make sure that your, your offer's in range. Right. They're a little bit complicated because the details matter so much. Same square footage, same bedrooms, same area, house, vastly different prices can make sense depending on whether or not the home was remodeled, for example. So you'll get all of this information from your realtor. And once you've reviewed all of that, that's when you will work with your realtor to actually submit your offer. And then your offer consists of a couple of different things. First, the most important thing, how much are you willing to pay for this home? This is the most exciting part, but it's actually very easy to get wrong. Specifically, you want to set a price or offer a price that you feel comfortable with. What I mean with this is you want to make sure that you're not regretting that offer later when you do not get the house or if you get it and you realize, oh, I was totally in FOMO mode and we offered way too much for this. Yeah, You don't want to feel like you regret the fact that you didn't throw in an additional $10,000, but you also don't want to feel like, oh, shit, we went a little overboard and we probably shouldn't have um, offered this much money. Yeah. So before you put a number down on your offer, you want to ask yourself, if this offer gets accepted with this amount, will I regret paying this much? And if it does not get accepted with this amount, will I regret to have not offered more? Uh, The next piece of the offer are the contingencies. So again, in very competitive markets like the Bay Area, we just waive all contingencies to make the offer more attractive. And you know, the reason for this, and we'll talk more about this later, is that you go up a lot against a lot of cash offers and cash offers just go much faster. So we want to maintain competitiveness. So we just 
wave them away. But you don't have to. I think in a lot of states, it's still very common to do that. But that is something that you have to include in your offer. And this is a... The part that you like the most, I think, is that the, the love letter. The love letter won us his house. <laughs> so the love letter is something that we include here. And it's basically a letter to the seller telling them about yourself and your family and why you love their home. And really, you know, you want to appeal to your audience. So the reason why you add this love letter is to add a personal touch to your offer that helps you stand out compared to this faceless investor that buys their 10th rental property. Follow us on social media to get a peek behind the scenes. We are at Unmarried Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So one thing that I recommend, I think this worked very well for us, is to do a little bit of research on the seller. You're going to get their information. Look them up, learn some things about them, and then appeal to them. You have to remember that when someone sells their home, it's very personal. And there are some people that personal connection is really important to them. So if they believe that they've found a family that will treat their home in the same way that they did and respect it in the same way that they did and relate to them in some way, it gives you an, an edge. Right. Once your offer was submitted, the seller and their agent will go and review all the offers that they have received. And at least here in the Bay Area, that typically goes really fast. So like either the, the same, same day, day or the next day, you will likely be able to hear back from... Whether or not your offer is being considered. Right. And typically, the top three offers are considered and potentially given a chance, the chance to readjust their offer to be more competitive. So this is when they may counter you. And that, in fact, is what happened to us. So we got to the top two offers, I believe. Uh, and we were up against an all cash offer. But because of our love letter and the personal connection that I identified between us and the seller, they liked us. They wanted us to have the house. So they came back and said, hey, if you can match the top offer, which at this point, I think it was only what, $1,600 difference? $16,000. Sorry. Let's, let's get that right. Um, they would give us the house. So they weren't going to counter the other offer. They said, if you can meet us here, the house is yours. Um, and that was a very intense 20 minutes. <laughs> I think I was in the gym with my personal trainer. Yeah, when I, I called got the, you. When I got I the called call. you. And I'm like, they want $16,000 more. What do we do? And, and I like, was like, just pay it. <laughs> <laughs> I went to my, my trainer and said, give me a second. I need to buy a house. <laughs> So yeah, once your offer is accepted, though, that's when things start going really quick. And that's when escrow begins. Escrow is the process uh, of having a neutral third party that kind of helps close the transaction and the deal. There will be an escrow um, account where you wire all the money into and it sits in that escrow account. And this, the seller won't actually get any of the money until the title was transferred to you. And then the escrow company will release the funds to the seller. Right. And you have to start this process by funding the escrow account with what they call earnest money. Right, that's a maybe one to two percent of the home price. Generally, it's no money that you need to put into the escrow account before anything even starts. And in fact, if the deal busts for a large number of reasons, at the very least, you will not get that money back. So this shows your commitment to actually wanting to complete this deal instead of just being like, "Oh yeah, I put in an offer and I got an, got it accepted," but actually. I'm changing my mind. So once you've done that, that's when your lender finishes up the loan. So we've got the title report and the insurance. The lender is then going to need to confirm all your funds. So you have to provide more. 
you know, documents again, depending on how lo- you know long it's been since you got that pre-approval, you need to make you have to provide your latest documents to confirm your income and the funds that you have available. And then the lender has to appraise the property, which is also another scary thing in the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not really the scary thing. That was actually the step in the entire escrow process that took the longest for us. Right. Because I think it took three business days and it was on a Thursday or so. So we didn't get back to the appraisal until Monday next the next week. So that was just, we're just sitting there waiting for this appraisal. So for, for if you don't know what this an appraisal means, scary, yeah. right, is basically we made an offer on the house for a certain amount of money and now an appraiser comes to make sure that the house is worth that amount if we overpay um and this is actually one of the contingencies that we have waived the lender will not give us more money we will have to in the mortgage than what the house appraises for so if we if we have offered 20 percent more than the lender is willing to give us we have to come up with this 20 percent by ourselves Right. And in a very competitive market where you are typically offering over asking um, and could potentially get into a a bidding war with somebody, you better hope that your home then appraises for that much if you're not paying cash. Well, we were lucky a home appraised. I don't know. I think our realtor said that in her entire career, she'd only seen one home that didn't appraise. Typically, they always do, but it doesn't make it any less scary. Um, and with that, the lender can then finish up the loan and, and approve you for the loan. Once the loan is approved, that's when we go through the approval of the disclosures. And that's when you get a giant stack of paper. Yeah, you have basically have to you have like 500 pages uh, and you have to put your initials on every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. Actually. It really was a lot. <laughs> and then if you haven't waived them, inspections will happen so you actually have to hire an inspector. Your realtor will help you do that. Uh, we'll go through the house, make sure that all the uh, disclosures are correct. Um, can't speak too much to this part of the process really because didn't we, we didn't do it. Yeah. Um, then you'll do a final walkthrough with your realtor, double check everything, make sure everything is according to the inspections and disclosures. One other thing that we might recommend <laughs> is, you know, if you have the ability to, you know, see the home during while it's in closing you know we asked while if, an escrow yeah yeah while it was an escrow we asked if we could pop in and see it so we could take some measurements and that actually brought to light that the water heater in the garage was leaking and it had leaked under the floor through the whole downstairs now mind you this is not the same water damage that happened a month later in the exact same area but we identified a bunch of water damage while we were in escrow that delayed our escrow a bit because the seller had to then make the repairs and, and hire the people to come in and, and fix it. So had we not had that happen, we would have closed in 10 days, um, but it did take longer because we found that. So it doesn't hurt to pop back in and check things out. At the very least, at your final walkthrough, you, you don't want to buy something that has since crumbled. Right. And then the last step is close of escrow and, and signing that, that final piece of paper. Yeah, this is when you wire all the... All the money. All the money. All the money. This is when you're paying, you're, you're wiring in your down payment, uh, and then your lender's also wiring the rest of the, the loan. Um, we highly recommend that you look to your uh, where you're keeping your money uh, and how quickly they can turn around a wire transfer uh, because this could literally could come down to the wire. So you want to make sure that you're able to get all your money into the account by the time it needs to be there. Yeah, so we had our funds 
in various accounts, depending on where we got those funds from. You had some funds in your savings, whatever. I had some in my savings. I had some in my brokerage account. I, I had, had some. some in a brokerage account. Yeah, it was just... So they everywhere. were like all over the place, basically. So we didn't just send one wire. We sent a couple of wires from different accounts. And with every single one of our banks, we were able to call them and ask them to please expedite those wire transfers because this is really time sensitive. The, this, the seller and the escrow company, they expect it to go through within hours, um, not days. We we called them and said, hey, can you expedite? I just put it in a wire. Can you expedite this? With every single bank, there was no problem except for... We won't throw them under the bus, but it's an online bank. It's a relatively smaller bank. We learned after hours of dealing with them that they just weren't equipped for the amount of uh, wire transfers that they were getting requested. So literally, we waited until that Monday, but actually should have put our request in the Saturday before so that it was in line. Um, Basically, we were at like the end of the line and it took a lot of effort and, and it was quite stressful to get someone on the line that would help us get this through in time. That's just something to consider depending on the type of bank that you use. To Yeah, make sure that all the funds are in one account. And, that would have made it easier. And call your bank and ask them if they are able to expedite a wire transfer if you were to put one in. And uh, once all the money's there, that's when you get another giant stack of paper and... Uh, you sign. Congrats. Then, yeah. Now you owe a shit ton of money to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you own your own home. Mostly. <laughs> this process is, I mean, it's relatively the same wherever you're buying a home in the US. But we have mentioned some of the nuances of tr- purchasing a home in the Bay Area uh, and why specifically it's a little bit nuts. So if any of you are listening from out of state and just kind of aren't familiar with the market out here, we thought we might point out a few things uh, that make looking for a home in the Bay Area significantly more difficult than somewhere else. Yeah, so I think the most important thing is just housing prices are through They're the insane. roof. It's, it's virtually impossible to find a home that can accommodate a three, four-person family for less than $600,000, $800,000. And just to be clear, we're not talking about San Francisco proper. We're talking about the Bay Area. So if within a 50-mile radius of San Francisco. If we actually, we couldn't even buy a house in San Francisco. A house that would support a family of four would be starting at $2 million. And worse, most property then even sells over asking. Always. In fact, we paid beyond 130% of asking for this house. To be fair, I think this house was posted quite low. Yeah, they. I think uh, our realtor explained, Kira explained to us this way, they purposefully post or list the house at a rate that is below its actual market value to get more interest going. And so then you get like this bidding war going on, which in the end kind of was the case. So when we made the offer, we knew there was no way that we would just put down, we had to make a significant jump. Our initial offer was already significantly over asking price. We've also mentioned that the competition here is insane. Specifically, you know, a lot of people like to invest in property. And when you're going up against investors, they typically will pay in cash. Yeah. And there's with all the tech companies and stuff, there's a very significant influx of people coming from literally all over the world um, that have significant amounts of money available that are looking to to buy their first home. And so all this money essentially floods into the housing market through investors as well as um, affluent um, overseas. Uh, people that are moving here from from all over the place. So the that just causes an explosion in the, the, the prices for housing. When you go up against these all-cash offers, 
they don't have to wait for a lender to approve the loan, approve the loan. or appraise it. Yeah. So, I mean, it goes much faster, which is why we're forced to waive all of our contingencies because when we do that, we shorten what should be a 30-day escrow to 10 days. And then lastly, we thought we'd touch a little bit about how to buy a house when you're not married. As everybody knows, we are not married. So uh, it made the house buying process a little bit different. We wanted to ensure that we both found value in, in owning this home together. So what we did was go, we went into the home as tenants in common. What this means is each of us owns a certain fraction of the house. A common way to do this is to to split it 50-50. That didn't work out for us, though. We wanted to make sure that whatever percentage of the house we own is also what we contribute to both the initial cost as well as the running cost. So if we were to split the house 50-50, each of us would have to put in 50% of the initial cost as well as 50% of all the running cost. And that, that didn't work out for us. Um, so we actually adjusted the percentages somewhat to account for how much I I essentially could afford every month, right? Um, without stretching myself too thin, right? And so we actually put together a sophisticated spreadsheet um, that had all the different costs lined up and the with our income, yeah, had like our income and all the different costs and the initial costs and also opportunity costs. If we invested that money instead into the stock market to see what amount of opportunity cost we were paying for buying this house. And then we had like a, a slider basically where we could say, okay, we're splitting this 50-50 or 60-40 or 55-45, whatever. And then it would then output both the fractional initial cost as well as the fractional running cost for each of us. And so we were able to determine exactly what we can afford and in what split. Right. That's definitely something that we would recommend for people who are buying a home together and, and you're not married is splitting ownership by what you can afford. So if one person can pay more than the other, then reflect that in the actual ownership of the home. And vice versa. If one person owns more, they also will be responsible for more of the costs. Not only do we split... Uh, did we split the the one-time costs and the reoccurring costs like mortgage and property taxes? Property taxes. I also want to be clear that 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 also includes you know repairs and ongoing costs. Yeah, and, are, and home improvements. Yeah, and home improvements. So if we if we make any if we decide to make any improvements to the house uh, or have any repairs that we have to pay for, we'll split those costs according to the house ownership as well. So I think it's safe to say that buying a house is a huge commitment, and it's not something that you should jump into without preparing. To ensure that your adventure into home ownership is a smooth and rewarding experience, remember our top five quick tips. So I think the first tip is start building credit early. And this is really important. If you need to clean up and repair your credit, you'll need time to do that. You can't do that overnight. Even if you're just considering maybe buying a house at some point in a couple of years, make sure to start working on your credit today. Number two, don't quit your job if you're thinking about buying a house in the next year. So we mentioned that uh, stability in, in your income is important to the lender and they want to see that you've made the commitment and that you've stuck with a company for at least two years. So if you're at all considering buying a home in the next two years, really think about where you're working uh, because if you job hop, that will impact your mortgage. Number three is do your homework and understand what you can truly afford including all these hidden costs and not so obvious costs that we have outlined. Number four, uh, don't get discouraged. Depending on the job market in your area, you may be looking for a while. So don't give up. The home for you is out there. 
And then number five, the final tip, have your documents and money ready to go. Escrow goes fast. Don't get stuck on a lazy wire. <laughs> Don't get stuck on a call with customer service for three hours. I think that about covers it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and make sure to subscribe. Have you already purchased your own home? Or are you still looking to find that perfect house? Maybe you're struggling to find a good mortgage that can pay for what you want. Tell us on Twitter at Unmarried Media. I am Daniel. And I'm Danielle. And, and we, we are, are happily, happily unmarried. unmarried. It's an hour and a half.